following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Well, it's... uh privilege and a pleasure in equal measure for me to be with you here this morning. Uh, I've never been in Antioch, neither Pisidian Antioch nor Syrian Antioch, but I've now been in South Carolinian Antioch, and it's a pleasure to be here. I, I noticed on the plaque that the church was founded in 1843. That's a very significant year in the history of the life of the church in Scotland, Mother Presbyterian Church. In 1843, 474 ministers seceded from the National Church to to form the Church of Scotland Free. It was a remarkable day in the life of the church. Charles Hodge considered it one of the greatest moments in the history of the Christian church in the previous 18 centuries. But within 30 years, 30 years, the 474 ministers who had left to form the Church of Scotland Free, confessional and faithful, had become astonishingly as liberal as the church they had left. Not all of them But as a body, they had departed far. And so the word of Scripture ought always to be in the forefront of our minds. Let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. Well, I'm sure like me, these past two days or so, you have been asking yourself, I wonder what this new year has in store for me, has in store for my family, For my children, my grandchildren, what does the year have in store for this congregation? What does the year have in store for the United States of America? Well, of course, none of us know what a day will bring. But we thank God that we belong to the one who does. The Lord is on high He is not phased by the confusions and the absurdities that cover the face of this planet. He has ordained all things according to the counsel of his own will, mysteriously to us, often bewilderingly and perplexingly. So often we say, Lord, why? But our comfort is that he is the one who not only ordains all things, but ordains them wisely and perfectly and well. And one day when we behold him in Jesus Christ face to face, we will surely say, Lord, you have done all things well. God's sovereignty is intended to be a comfort to us, not a puzzle to unravel, but a comfort to lay our weary, often distempered minds and hearts and bodies upon because the God who is sovereign is our loving heavenly Father in Jesus Christ, the God who spared not his own son but delivered him up 
for us all. So as we look out into a new year, we, we don't know what a day will bring. And what I want to think with you about this morning is a truth that I think more than anything else we need to have uppermost in our minds and hearts as we look out into an unknown future. If I were to ask you this morning, tell me what you think your greatest need is for 2022, I'm sure we would have different answers. What I want to suggest to you this morning is that our greatest need is to fix our eyes upon Jesus, the author and finisher of faith. You know those words in Hebrews 12, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. And then the writer to the Hebrews says something that our English translations rarely capture. He says, looking away to Jesus. Not just looking to Jesus, but looking away to Jesus. He's writing to Christians who were experiencing struggles and hardships and and persecutions, and they were in danger of turning back. And the writer, in a sense, in those few words, sums up the whole of his letter to the Hebrews, which he calls, you'll remember in chapter 13, a brief word of uh, exhortation or encouragement. It's a paracletic epistle. And he says, here is your great need. Look away to Jesus. And that's why this morning I want to reflect with you on those closing words in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible or unspeakable or indescribable gift. I wonder if it's ever struck you that it's often in the midst of the mundane that the Apostle Paul highlights some glorious truth that stops us in our tracks. You find it perhaps most dramatically in Philippians chapter 2. Paul has been writing to a church that has experienced dissensions, there were difficulties, there were uh, women were not agreeing, there, there were problems that were dangerously infecting and affecting the life of the church. And Paul's remedy to those dissensions and disagreements and arguments is to say to them, let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but himself he emptied, taking the form of a servant. It's as if Paul is taking a theological sledgehammer to the problems and difficulties and troubles of this little congregation in Philippi. And he's saying to them, consider your Savior Jesus Christ. When you're tempted to backbite and speak ill of others and engage in unwholesome controversies, consider your Savior Jesus Christ 
and especially this is Paul, who being God himself was willing to empty himself. Now, he didn't stop being God. That's why I struggle with some lines in And Can It Be, emptied himself of all but love. He didn't empty himself of anything. You see, but is that not what Paul says? Himself, he emptied, he out on Echonos, and himself he emptied. Notice what follows, taking the form of a servant. He didn't divest himself of anything. He took upon himself the life and the work of a servant. He humbled himself. He clothed his indefectible glory and deity in humility and humanity. And that all comes out of this exhortation of Paul's not to argue or dispute or uh, engage in unwholesome controversies. And it's the same here in 2 Corinthians. In chapters 8 and 9, Paul is writing to the Corinthians about the grace of giving. Did you know that giving is a grace? He wants these Christians in Corinth in southern Greece to live up to their promise to provide generously for the poor people of God in Jerusalem. And he unembarrassedly presses upon them the grace of godly, sacrificial giving. And then he concludes this two-chapter focus on giving with these glorious words, thanks be to God for his inexpressible, unfathomable, unspeakable gift. And what Paul is doing here is following what we might call the grammar of the gospel. Now, when I was a little lad at school in the East End of Glasgow, we were taught grammar. Grammar was a thing that you were actually taught. And I loved it. I loved to learn about verbs and nouns and adjectives and appositional clauses and subordinate clauses. Um, I thought this was wonderful. And the Bible has a grammar. It has a linguistic grammar, but it has a theological grammar. And the theological grammar is simply this. The commandments of God are rooted, grounded, and flow out of the grace of God in his son, Jesus Christ. You find it prototypically at the beginning of Exodus 20 and the Ten Commandments. The Lord is about to impress on his people and command his people to live in a certain way. But remember how he begins, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. I am the God of grace, of delivering mercy. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. And perhaps in the New Testament, the prototypical pattern is seen in in Romans chapter 12. For 11 chapters, Paul has been expounding the gospel of the glory of God in Jesus Christ. What he calls in chapter 1, verse 1, the gospel of God. And he has unfolded the gospel 
remarkably and you're swept along by the sheer immensities and infinities of the grace and mercy of God in the giving of his son Jesus Christ and then as he begins the 12th chapter he says therefore therefore I beseech you to present your bodies as living sacrifices before he summons them, commands them, exhorts them to present themselves unreservedly to the Lord, he says, let me tell you why you should. And it's the same pattern here, it's this theological grammar that Paul beautifully, because he waits to the very end of two chapters on Christian giving, and the importance of it, the necessity of it, the grace of it. And he finishes by saying, thanks be to God for his inexpressible, unfathomable, unspeakable gift. Now, there is some discussion and debate as to precisely what Paul means here, but let me just tell you what he means, and rather than engage in what might be an interesting and helpful dialogue, let me tell you what Paul is saying. He's saying, I've been speaking to you, writing to you about the grace of Christian giving. I've been writing to you about how important it is that, that your gifts of grace should be given extravagantly, sacrificially, so that the people of God might be encouraged and helped and strengthened. And now I want to tell you why, why you should do this. Because in his son Jesus Christ, God has given to you the greatest, the highest, the best, the most glorious of all gifts. In fact, it is so glorious as Paul, I don't have language to explain it. It is inexpressible. It is unspeakable. Great early church father Augustine said, you know the reason we only speak is so that we don't remain silent. There's no language to meaningfully, far less fully explain this gift of God to us in his son, Jesus Christ. And so he says it's indescribable. It's unspeakable, which might be a better use of the word. It's a kind of multi-nuanced word that Paul uses. He only uses it once here in the New Testament. It's used in one other place in a similar context. And I want simply this morning to just reflect briefly with you on what the Apostle writes here. I want to notice first of all with you that Jesus Christ is God's gift to the world and especially to his church. I guess this is Christianity 101. There's nothing more basic, is there? Why did Jesus Christ come into the world? Because we asked him to? Because there was something in us that required him to? No. He is God's gift. 
A gift is not something you earn. It's not something you deserve. It's something that is freely and generously given. I'm very conscious that this is, this is where the gospel almost begins, doesn't it? It's so basic. I remember when I went to Cambridge to minister in 1999, I thought for a very short time that maybe I needed to up my game. I'd been 20 years a parish minister in a semi-depressed mill town in southwest Scotland. I thought, I'm going now to the great university city of Cambridge. Maybe I'll, I'll need to be preaching more profoundly. I'll need to preach about the opera ad extra trinitatis indivisus sunt. I'll need to preach about the, the communicatio idiomatum. You don't need to know what these things mean. And you very quickly realise, don't be such a fool. Preach Jesus Christ. Preach him as the scriptures proclaim him. And the scriptures proclaim him foundationally as the gift of God to the world. A gift we never could ask for and would never have asked for. A gift that we could never deserve, though we live 10,000 times, 10,000 lifetimes. But it pleased God. It pleased God to send forth his Son. John Owen has a wonderful passage in the second volume of his collected works, round about page 29. And he says, The love of God is the fountainhead of the gospel, the free, sovereign, glorious, inexplicable love of God. It's the fountainhead of the gospel. Everything goes back to the love of God, undeserved, but freely and gloriously given in the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. We read Genesis 22. And as I was reading, I was just thinking as I was reading how wonderfully the scriptures hold together the persons of the Godhead. They went up together. Twice or three times, they went up together. And when we think of the Lord Jesus Christ as God's gift to the world, we must always remember to hold in happy, holy tension the Son, the Father who gave the Son, and the Holy Spirit who upheld the Son, for it was by the eternal Spirit that he offered himself unblemished to God. Jesus Christ is God's gift. He spared not his only son, but delivered him up for us all. Because in his son, in his wisdom and grace, God found a way to justify the ungodly. And Paul says we need to think about that whenever we think about Christian giving. Because theology is the wellspring of living 
They are intimately connected. We should never do anything prosaically or ordinarily in our Christian lives without tracing it back to the fountainhead of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit conspiring in holy, perfect unity to devise a way that would bring lost, fallen, sinful humanity back to God. That's basic, isn't it? But I need every day to be reminded of the basics of the gospel. But secondly, and it's this I want in the time left to focus on, especially with you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. It's not just that Jesus Christ is God's gift to the world and especially to his church. He is God's inexpressible gift. How are we to understand this? What is it about this gift that is inexpressible, that leaves us lost in wonder, love and praise? What is it about this Jesus Christ that leaves us out of our depth? What language can I borrow to praise thee, dearest friend? There is no language. So what can we say about this inexpressible gift? What is it that makes Jesus Christ so gloriously inexpressible? Let me just suggest two things this morning. First of all, his person is inexpressible. Who is this gift that God gave to the world? It is his only begotten Son, Not his only son or his one and only son. Don't let these New English translations. It's his only begotten son. The son who was with him from everlasting. The son who beheld him, who was face to face with him, as John puts it, in the eternities. You know, when the early Christian church wrestled with this inexpressible wonder God become man you know every Christmas time especially I'm I'm humbled and shamed that I sing so easily and preach so easily about the one who became flesh Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. What on earth is that? Well, the early church came to the conclusion, we don't know. We know what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean there was some kind of admixture or confusion in the persons of the Godhead with with humanity. We know what it doesn't mean, but... We do not know what it does mean. There is an inexplicableness to the person of Jesus Christ. That's why, in a sense, every sermon should leave us out of our depth. 
Because God transcends all our categories of thought. God become man in Jesus Christ. No wonder when the Lord, remember that great occasion in the end of Mark 4, he calms the storm. And the disciples who've been with him for some weeks, perhaps months by this time, look at one another and say, who is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. The eternal God who, who cannot be contained becomes flesh in a virgin's womb. Think on this, there was something in the manger bigger than the whole cosmos. We're out of our depth. And that's why I love those closing words in Paul's doxology in Romans 11. We're having explicated as best as he is able with the help of the Spirit of God, the gospel of God, he says, oh, the depths. How unsearchable are his judgments, his paths are beyond tracing out who has known the mind of the Lord. You see, the great wonder of the incarnation is not that we can fathom it, but that God did it. And we shun speculation and we bow down and worship. Who has known the mind of the Lord? There is an inexpressibleness, an unfathomableness in the gift of the person of Jesus Christ. Uniting in himself our nature with his divine nature but only one person. And that will be a thought that we will dig down into through the ages of eternity. At the risk of wearying you with John Owen, John Owen has a marvellous passage somewhere, it must be in volume one, where he says, the glory of the Christian religion The glory and foundation on which all our hopes rest is the hypostatic union, the union in Jesus Christ of two natures. You think, well, is it not the cross? Oh, says, oh, no, 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 no. Because if you separate the cross from the person who died there, you rob the cross of its glory. It's who was offered up. The sole foundation on which we rest the whole of our religions as own is that glorious, ineffable, unfathomable union. And that's what we need to hold before us in this coming year, pondering the immensities, the infinities, the unfathomableness of the person of the one who came to be our salvation. So there's an inexpressibleness in his person, but secondly and briefly, there's an inexpressibleness in his work. There is a great danger, I think, 
amongst evangelicals and, and even in our own Reformed tradition of preaching the cross, maybe not dispassionately but too clinically, as if we tick all the boxes. We talk about penal substitutionary atonement, glorious truth. But does it leave us lost in wonder, love and praise? The work of Christ is inexpressibly glorious, unfathomably glorious. And perhaps the best lens through which to begin to begin to appreciate something of the inexpressibleness is is wonderfully that passage in Genesis 22. Which has a trajectory that lands in Romans 8.32. He who spared not his only son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? In the work of Christ, we see two great truths. Two great truths that enfold into one another. We see the Father delivering up his only begotten Son. We see God the Father not sparing his only begotten Son. Abraham was spared plunging the knife. But a father infinitely more fatherly than Abraham did not withhold plunging the knife. Who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. Who has known the mind of the Lord? You have the work of the Father going up with his Son all the way to Calvary. And from womb to Golgotha, the Saviour Jesus Christ had only ever known the smile of the Father upon him. He had even seen the heavens split open and the Father saying, this is my beloved Son. With him I'm well pleased, but, but now on the cross, the heavens are not opened. But the Father lays on him the iniquity of us all. You have the work of the Father giving up the Son, and you have the work of the Son embracing the will of the Father and offering up himself willingly You know, some people are puzzled by the Gethsemane agony of Christ. Father, if it be possible, take this cup from me. If Jesus Christ had never spoken those words, he couldn't have been our saviour. There would have been no true humanity in him. Holy humanity recoils from the divine judgment. Yet, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. There is an inexpressibleness to the cross. 
Yes, we preach it, we proclaim it, we declare it, but we do so as men who are out of our depths. Out of our depths. We cannot begin to begin to fathom what it would mean for the eternal Son of God, God the Son in our flesh, to be forsaken. Not with an imagined forsakenness. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I don't know how to preach that. I've preached that text, Matthew 27, 46. I've preached that text a number of times. I really don't know how to preach it. I don't understand it. I understand the grammar. I could parse every word in that sentence. But it leaves me bewildered. But please God, by his grace, lost in wonder and praise. And so Paul says, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. And as we look out into another year, surely more than anything else, pondering reflecting on, meditating on the person of Christ and the work of Christ will more than anything else enable us to navigate our way through whatever trials, troubles, storms, uncertainties touch our lives. And the last thing I simply want to say is what should our response be to that? Well, says Paul, thanks be to God. I'm always struck reading Ephesians 5 when Paul says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And then he goes on not to define the Spirit-filled life, but to describe it. He says, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, making melody to the Lord in your heart, giving thanks at all times and for everything. One of the principal marks of the Spirit-filled life is thankfulness to God. And thankfulness to him for the gift of his Son is surely one of the pristine hallmarks of the new birth. When you find in your heart thankfulness to God for Jesus, you should immediately go your parents first to your minister and elders and say, I want to confess him because God has given me a new heart. I want to confess him and feed on him by faith. So may we all, by God's grace, give thanks to him for his indescribable gift. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.